reading passage today will be from Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 14, and verses 21 through 30. And we'll also be reading Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Verses 21 through 30. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. Now let's read from Romans chapter 6, verses 1. 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary, and happy Easter. Hope you're off to a good start uh, this Easter morning. My wife texted me, said that there in the kind of the quietness of our house an Easter morning before anyone had gotten up, that my five-year-old jumped out of her room and shouted, Easter, and went running into the house. So like Christmas morning, which, you know, is actually makes a lot of sense because Easter is the fulfillment of Christmas morning. So hopefully you're off to a good start uh, with, uh, with us here in this Easter. I was thinking about uh, last year at this time, you might recall, if you've been around Calvary, you know, I had a head injury last year. And so last year, you were here and I was not. And this year, I'm here and you're not. So I don't know exactly what that means. I guess we're all taking our turn not being in church on Easter. But any case, I'm here this morning. I'm wearing my Easter morning best. I'm not sure about you. Perhaps you're in your best pajamas this morning or your best bathrobe. Speaking of pajamas, kids, good morning to you. Perhaps you're still in your pajamas as well, but this is uh, Easter. It is the highlight of the Christian year. It is the, truthfully, it is the highlight of humanity's year. This is the, this is the day that we celebrate the hope that God has broken into the world and given us life over death. Well, I hope you were able to join us uh, for all of Holy Week for Monday, Thursday. Uh, Pastor Manfred uh, led that service and brought a word uh, for us, and then Pastor John on Good Friday, and then here we are on Easter morning. And Pastor Manfred and Pastor John carried us forward in our year-long sermon series, and so we've continued uh, through Holy Week. Uh, our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to keep after that sermon series this morning, focusing on the famous crossing of the Israelites through the Red Sea. And as we're going to see in a moment uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, which hasn't yet been read for us, we're going to see in a moment that the Apostle Paul picks up the Red Sea crossing and he draws a connection between the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and the Christian being baptized into Christ. Of course, baptism is a very relevant theme for Easter since baptism is all about resurrection. So this is actually a great text for us here on Easter morning, Exodus 14, and the baptism of the Israelites through the Red Sea. And truth be told, I, I planned it that way. So it's not just a coincidence. But here we are looking this morning at baptism and resurrection and the reminder that we have 
of our own baptism is a pointer to not just the work that Christ has done in the past through his resurrection, but also the hope of what he's going to do for us in the future. So what we're going to do this morning is look first at Exodus 14, which has been read for us, the crossing of the Red Sea, see how it was a great sign of hope for the Israelites. And then we're going to look at Romans 6, which has been read for us, where Paul speaks at length about baptism, probably one of the, it's the most developed passage in the New Testament about baptism, and see how it too is a great sign of hope for us. So maybe you could use a little bit of baptism Easter hope this morning. That's what the Red Sea baptism and Easter are all about. They're all about hope. So let's jump into our passage here this morning and see what message of hope the Lord has for us. All right, so in Exodus 14, to give a little bit of a quick review from uh, kind of a running start, as it were, to where we are, you'll recall, as Pastor Manfred uh, noted, and Pastor Johnny even before that uh, noted how Jacob the father of Israel, the founding father of Israel, as it were, the 12 tribes, he, he brought his sons down into Egypt and they lived there 400 years. First things were going very well, but as they multiplied and grew, Pharaoh and the Egyptians began to become suspicious of them, became nervous about their power, and so eventually enslaved them. So things were not going well when we get to Exodus. The Israelites have multiplied, but they're enslaved. And so God sends Moses down into Egypt to deliver the Israelites from their bondage to the Egyptians. And at first, Pharaoh refused to let them go. He dug his, he dug his heels in. But then Moses brings the power of God and he brings ruinous plagues upon Egypt. And in these series of ruinous plagues, he rains havoc down on Pharaoh in Egypt. And in the 10th and culminating plague, finally the stubbornness of Pharaoh breaks and he agrees to let the Israelites go. And that's where we got to with Pastor John on Good Friday, the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb shed, protecting the people of Israel from the wrath of God that came down upon the Egyptians. So Israel packs up their things. They head out because Pharaoh has relented. But as soon as they've left, alas, Pharaoh repents of his repentance and he comes after the Israelites with his army. So when we pick up the story in Exodus 14, the Israelites are trapped. They're between a rock and a hard spot. They've got the Red Sea in front of them, which they can't cross, and they've got the Egyptian army coming behind them. And verses uh, 10 through 12 tell us in chapter 14 of Exodus that the Israelites are very scared. They're terrified. And they complain to Moses and they say in verse 11, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It would have been better to have been a slave in Egypt than to come out here and be killed. So they're in despair. They're terrified. Moses, though, assures them that God is still fighting for them, that God has not brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. And he exhorts them to stand firm in their faith, to keep believing, and they will see the salvation of God. They need only to be silent and to be still. And then we skipped a little bit to shorten the reading, but 
what happens next is the Lord brings a cloud of fire down and it separates the Egyptian army from the Israelites. And this cloud of fire becomes a barrier, as it were, separating these two people. And during the night, this cloud of fire stays separating the two parties. And Moses raises his staff. He's like a wizard. And he calls in a strong east wind. And the wind drives back the water all night until dry ground appears. Now, as an aside, uh, I did some reading on that. I read articles uh, on the BBC and the NPR uh, news sites. And you can, you can Google this if you're interested. But it was about a team of scientists from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And they used a computer model to show how a 60 miles per hour wind blowing for a long enough period of time would be able to generate sufficient force to physically push back water. It's, no, it's a known phenomenon. It's known as wind setdown. So just Google wind setdown and you'll find it. And the team concluded that wind setdown would have been able, theoretically, to create a land bridge about four miles long and two and a half miles wide over a particular portion of the Red Sea. And this has actually been cited uh, back in the 1800s by a British general who saw winds set down take place in a certain part of the Suez Canal. But turns out winds set down is not necessarily the tidy explanation for the Red Sea that maybe we all might hope. The Bible says that the wind came from the east, which is actually the direction that the Israelites were walking. So the Israelites would have been walking into the 60 miles per hour wind. And when I Googled how strong is a 60 miles per hour wind, apparently it's a pretty strong wind. So not easy to walk into. So maybe the re real miracle here is not the parting of the water, but how the ox cartons and the old Israelite ladies and all the children weren't blown back into Egypt. In any case... Whatever the exact science, Exodus tells us that God brought a strong wind that blew all through the night, that parted the waters and created a path of dry ground through a certain portion of the Red Sea. So the Israelites passed through the sea and up and out the other side. And then once they were safely through the sea, this cloud of fire lifted and the Egyptians rushed forward down into the sea to chase the Israelites. Moses then takes his staff again and calls the water back down in upon Pharaoh and his armies and destroys Pharaoh and his armies. And this moment here, this crossing of the Red Sea became the defining moment when the children of Israel broke free from bondage, when they ceased being Egyptian slaves and became the people of God. They went into the sea as slaves and they came up out of the sea free and redeemed. And all throughout their history, the Israelites would look back on this moment, this Red Sea crossing, as the quintessential moment of their deliverance. Everything was compared to it. Everything that would happen in the future was compared to the Red Sea crossing. The psalmists and the prophets, especially when you read through the psalms and then you read through the prophets in particular, 
they would pick up this theme of the Red Sea crossing and they would frequently appeal to the Red Sea crossing as the great act of God's past deliverance that served as the basis of their hope for God's future deliverance. Just as you did this in the past, Lord, do it for us in the future. And it's this great act of deliverance that the Apostle Paul picks up and says is a type or a sign of our salvation in Christ. So this wasn't read for us, but I want to turn briefly here. You don't need to turn to it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Then he goes on to say, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, he's connecting the dots here in Israel's story. Israel's trapped in slavery in Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. They come out the other side of the Red Sea, and then God provides for them in the desert bread from heaven. He provides for them water from a rock. He provides miraculous food, miraculous drink. He, and, and Paul says, these are all the signs of our salvation, that they're passing through the Red Sea is the sign, a foreshadowing of our baptism into Christ. And the bread that comes down from heaven and the water that comes out of the rock, these are a sign of the sacraments of communion, of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And so Paul connects these dots now, he doesn't provide a great deal of uh, information about baptism here in 1 Corinthians 10, so we're going to move over to Romans 6, which is what's already been read for us. And there are a lot of things that we could say about baptism from Romans chapter 6, but I want to follow the example of the Old Testament saints in their looking to the Exodus. I want to look at baptism as the great sign of our past salvation and the great sign of hope of our future deliverance and salvation. And in particular, I want to apply the truths of baptism, or at least two truths of baptism, to two particular situations. And I'm, I'm, maybe these apply to you this morning. We need to remember our baptism when we are overwhelmed by our sin. Secondly, we need to remember our baptism when we are overwhelmed by our circumstances. So let's look at Romans 6 and see the ways in which we're invited to remember our baptism. So remembering our baptism when we are overwhelmed by our sin. Look what Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Let me read it again. It's already been read for us, but to draw our attention back to it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Baptism, Christian baptism, this entry right into the Christian community at its most fundamental level, is a sign of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. 
And because we've been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, it is for us then a sign of freedom from our death and sin and our hope unto resurrection. In verse 4, Paul says that to die and rise with Christ is to leave behind sin and death. That's why Paul says that in 6.4 here that the point of baptism is that we might walk in the newness of life. It's what baptism is for. It's, it is to remind us of walking in the newness of life. And then in 6.7, he asserts that baptism is about freedom from the tyranny of sin. Look, Paul says, for anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Passing through the waters of baptism with Christ means our freedom from slavery and sin, just like passing through the waters of the Red Sea meant freedom for the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. So the great news of the gospel that is proclaimed in our baptism is that Christ's death to sin and death becomes our death to sin and death. And Christ's resurrection to new life becomes our resurrection to new life. Which is to say that Good Friday is only half of the story. Christianity is born out of the Easter miracle. There was nothing extraordinary about Jesus dying on a cross. There was nothing unusual about a man dying on a cross in those days. Thousands, probably tens of thousands of men had been hung on Roman crosses that year. That wasn't the extraordinary thing. But to rise from the dead, that was the miracle that gave birth to Christianity. And that was what the apostles preached from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. You can check this out in the book of Acts. Take some time, if you have it, sit down with the book of Acts, read through it, pay attention to all the places where the apostles proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And what you'll see is that they always proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. It was the resurrection of Jesus that was the amazing thing. They didn't run around telling everyone that Jesus had died, stop. They talked about Jesus' death as a precursor to talking about his resurrection. That's the miracle. Take away this single great miracle of Jesus' resurrection and the whole Christian story falls to the ground. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. It's futile. Christianity is not just some story of a man who came and taught us how to live a bunch of ethical ways in the world and then was killed and that we're all doing our best to just kind of live in the way that he taught us to live. Christianity is the story of a man who came and taught us about God and who knew God because he was the son of God. And in his dying, he overcame death and was raised to new life so that we can, as Paul says in Romans 6, walk in the newness of life so that we can walk in all the ways that God has ordained and, and desired for human beings to walk. First the cross, then the resurrection. First dying with Christ, then rising with Christ. And that's why the life of every Christian begins with the sacrament of baptism. 
It's God's way of reminding us that the whole Christian life is a miracle and that it culminates, it reaches its fulfillment in freedom and new life. Or we could say it like this, as I often say it when doing baptisms, as we have grown accustomed to saying it here, our baptism proclaims the promise that what God has done for Jesus, he will do also for us. That what God has done for Jesus, he will do for us. And it bears saying, just so we're all clear, Jesus didn't plunge into death. He didn't plunge into the grave for his own sake. He plunged in there for our sake. He went down into death to get us because that's where we were, all of us. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an essay called The Grand Miracle. And he speaks of Jesus coming to earth in the incarnation uh, in these words. I think they're great words that even apply here specifically to baptism. But listen to what he says of Jesus and his descent. He says, One has the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit waters into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime, then up again, his lungs almost bursting back again to the green and warm and sunlit water, and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing, Lewis says, is human nature. And that is so right about what baptism is. When Jesus burst back into the land of the living, holding you and I in his hand, what he had gone down to get. We were set free from the tyranny of sin and death. That's the good news of the message of baptism, and it is the hope that we celebrate on Easter. And yet, this doesn't happen all at once. I've been baptized, here I am, still plagued by sin and still too often feeling the oppression of my own and the world's brokenness. I've experienced the deliverance of God in my life in all sorts of circumstances and in all sorts of ways, some dramatically, others more gradually and slowly, like a plant slowly growing day by day. I hope you've experienced the deliverance of God in your life as well. But I've not yet experienced, and I know that you haven't either, have not experienced the deliverance of God in totality, in all of its fullness. So what gives? How do we make sense of that? Look what Paul says here in verses 5 through 8. It says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. 
We have been buried with Christ, Paul says, in the past. And that's our assurance that we will be raised with Christ in the future. Our baptism is a sign of what has happened to us in the past, dying with Christ. And it's also a sign of what will happen to us in the future, rising with Christ. Just like the Israelites looked back to the Red Sea as the great act of God's deliverance, God's great act of deliverance, and then on the basis of that looked forward to God's future deliverance, we do the same with baptism. Paul is saying, while we wait for the fulfillment of the promise, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look here at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying we need to consider ourselves to be now in the present what God's grace is making us to be in the future. Your baptism, my baptism, proclaims your truest identity. It says who you are and who I am in our truest selves. Your baptism shows you how God thinks of you and treats you in the now, in light of what His grace is making you in the future. So some of you... Uh, have raised babies. All of us have been babies, right? But when you have a baby, you don't expect the baby to be everything in that moment that you hope the baby will be when the baby has grown up into an adult, right? So when the baby, you know, dribbles the food all over their face and they make a mess in their diaper and they hit you accidentally in the nose while they're waving their arms, you just smile and you take it all in stride because you know that while you love them as they are in that moment, that, that isn't the truest self that they will be in the future. And so you can, as it were, overlook all of their foibles, all of their immaturity, all of their shortcomings as babies in the present because you know what they will be in the future. And I think it's the same way with our growth in Christ, is that God doesn't think of us or treat us or assume that we will only be all that we are in the present, right? He sees us in the present. He is fully aware of our sins and our shortcomings, just like we are as parents with our children, right? But, but he, he sees us through the lens of what his grace is making us. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. And in our transformation into the image of Christ, that's who we really are, the finished product. Your baptism assures you of both the forgiving mercy of God while you wait on the promise of his renewing grace to take its full effect. The real you is not the you that went into the water or the you that still struggles against sin. The real you is the future you, the you that God is even now this morning making you to be the future you that you will be on the great day of resurrection when your baptism reaches its consummation and you are made a completely perfect human being. I got to tell you, there are so many things I wish 
that I was better at. There were sins that I so wished I had conquered a long time ago that can still beset me. Sometimes I feel like I've got the teeth of a little terrier dog latched onto my leg, just gnawing at me. And no matter how much I kick at it and shake it loose, it always comes back. And maybe you feel like that with your sin. Like there's some sin in your life that has, it has your number and you just can't seem to get free of it. Maybe it doesn't feel to you like a little terrier-sized sin dog, but like a Doberman pincher-sized sin dog. And it's in those moments when we are overwhelmed by our sin that we need to remember our baptism. Our baptism proclaims us to be the victor in our struggle against sin, even while we are in the midst of the fight. How much easier it is to fight against sin when we know the outcome is victory. Boy, how difficult it is to fight against sin when we don't know what the outcome will be when we don't know if we'll be able to pull it off. Our baptism proclaims that our truest self, the real self, has already died to that sin and has been raised to new life and freedom. Our baptism proclaims that our brokenness and sin and death is lying at the bottom of the sea with the ruined Egyptian army and that we have passed through to the other side. So perhaps you struggle against sin, but perhaps you struggle against sin without anticipating the victory. You don't struggle against sin remembering your baptism. You struggle against sin as though you had never been baptized, as though it meant nothing. You, you don't have hope. You see how strong of a grip sin has on you, and you know the sad limits of your own strength, and you've just basically given up. Give up on yourself, yes, but don't give up on the resurrecting power of Jesus. We need to consider ourselves in light of the truth of our baptism, not merely as we are in this life, in this midst of our struggle, but as we will be in the day of glory. Don't think of yourself as nothing more than a broken, ruined sinner. Believe yourself to be what God is making you, and you can even now begin to live into that reality. That's Paul's point he goes on to make in the remainder of Romans 6. Consider yourselves to be now what God is making you in the future. And in that consideration, in that what is called faith, you can now begin to access the power, the resurrecting power of God. So remember your baptism when you were overwhelmed by sin. And secondly, remember your baptism when you are overwhelmed by your circumstances. Sometimes I think we can so spiritualize the meaning of baptism that it, it loses sight of its material reality. Our baptism isn't just a sign of our spiritual deliverance from sin, as though our lives could be so neatly compartmentalized as the spiritual side of our lives, and then there's the material side of our lives. And the spiritual side of our lives is kind of the part of our life where we interact with God, it's the religious part of our life, and then the material part of life is where real life happens, right? But all of this is God's life. All of it is God's life. And God has come to bless and redeem all of it. Our baptism isn't just a sign of our spiritual deliverance from sin. 
Baptism is also a sign of our bodily deliverance from the tyranny of death and the devil. St. Irenaeus, he writes this about baptism. He says, For our bodies were united to imperishability by means of baptism, but our souls by means of the Spirit. And so both are necessary since both prepare us for our life with God. And he's pulling together this, I think, true insight that we are more than just spirit. We are more than just body. We are body and spirit together. And so when God brings the great sign of our salvation, he doesn't just give us a spiritual sign. He doesn't just give us a bodily sign. He pulls them together and he gives us a bodily spiritual sign because both body and spirit must be redeemed by the grace of God. The hope of baptism extends beyond the removal of our sins all the way to the healing of our bodies. And ultimately, in the healing of our bodies, the healing of our world. That's the point that Paul is going to go on to make in Romans chapter 8. He says that when the children of God are raised, when our bodies are fully and finally restored, then in that day, the whole world will rejoice because the whole world will be given new life as well. The entire world over which we are the rightful priest, kings, and queens, will be raised and restored in our resurrection and restoration. The healing of our bodies is the healing of the world. Because baptism is a sign of our bodily resurrection, then, it is also a sign of our victory over the forces of evil arrayed against us. Pastor John mentioned in this Good Friday sermon that Pharaoh was a type or an image of Satan, our great adversary. And we've been tracking along in our story of the Bible. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we can remember the rise of the adversary, and how he had came, and how he absconded with our throne, and he sowed death into the world, brought destruction. And so ever since that time in Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been looking for a deliverer to deliver us from this adversary that had come and wreaked death among us. The psalmists and the prophets then, interestingly, connect the Red Sea crossing to the overthrow of the adversary. So let me read you a passage here in Psalm 74. Verses 12 through 14. Here's one of the places where they remember the Red Sea crossing. He says, Yet God, my king, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. The biblical Leviathan was a great sea dragon or a great sea serpent. And he's an image and a type of Satan. And just as certainly as our baptism proclaims victory over sin, it also proclaims victory over our adversary. The head of the dragon will be crushed just as it was foretold and prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Our baptism is proclaiming in all things new reality. It is proclaiming the healing of the world. 
death will be defeated, sin will be removed, and the adversary will at last be overthrown. So if you're up against it this morning, I don't know what all of your circumstances are. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Maybe that's not even your worst problem. Maybe you have other problems that are equally bad or worse. I don't know what your problems might be, whether they're health, financial, relational, social. I don't know. Whatever it might be, let your baptism be a reminder that your victory is even now on the way. You won't get your whole victory all at once. The final restoration of your circumstances awaits all of us in the last day. But don't forget what we learned when we looked at the story of Abraham and his faith and how the righteousness of God that awaits us in the last day, even now, breaks into the present when we believe the promise of God. When we believe the promise of our baptism, that God will do for us everything that he has done for Jesus, that final resurrection power, that last day resurrection of power, races backwards into our present and begins even now to bring about the realities of the things that are coming in the future. Jesus has been exalted and raised above all powers in heaven and earth. He has died to sin and death. He has been given the victory. And we will be given the victory as well when we are in him and united in him. So hang on to your baptism as the pledge of God's promise that he is even now and one day will finally do for you everything that he has done for Jesus. I'd be remiss to not conclude this Easter morning sermon on baptism without making an appeal to you to be baptized. I don't just think primarily here of those of you who uh, have been walking the life of faith for so long and have neglected it. It goes without saying you should be baptized. Should have been baptized a long time ago. But I'm talking to those of you who want the resurrection hope in your life. You are, you are hungry and longing for hope in this world. Whether it is the curse of your own shortcomings and failures that you cannot shake, the curse of your own circumstances, we all live in the curse of both of those realities. But baptism proclaims the message of hope that in union with Christ, the Son of God, that we can be freed from all the tyranny and oppression and brokenness of this world, that we can enter into that even now in this moment and that it grows in us like a seed of salvation that reaches full flower in the day of resurrection. It is a free gift that God has offered us through his son. We cannot work for it. We cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to buy it. We receive it by faith. So let me encourage you just as Peter, when he preached the gospel, that first day of Pentecost, when Jesus had risen from the dead, and those who heard him were stricken to the heart, and they said, what, what should we do? What should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And what he was saying was, turn from your old life. Stop trying to find happiness and hope and joy and deliverance in your old life. And instead, turn to Christ Enter into union with him in baptism and receive the life 
and the freedom and the victory that is present in Christ. So I would pray that that would be true for you. Normally we do baptisms on Easter morning. We weren't able to do that uh, this Easter, though we did have some folks that wanted to be baptized. But as soon as we're back together, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we're going to be baptizing. So if you've not been baptized and you want to be baptized, or if you're not yet a Christian and you're ready to become a Christian, you let us know that so that we can plan that first Sunday back as a baptismal service of new life. All right. I love you. The Lord loves you. Let's close in prayer and thank God for the hope that we have this Easter in resurrection and baptism. Father, thank you for how you sent Christ into the world to dive, as it were, down into the depths of humanity, all the way to where we were in the grave, that he came all the way down to the bottom and he laid hold of us and he has risen with new life. He has raised us up above the grave. God, help us in faith to embrace this reality to be true of our lives. God, help it to be the thing that we remember when we are overcome thinking about our sin, when we are overcome thinking about our circumstances. God, help us to find our hope and our deliverance in you. God, thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the new life that we have in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.